Few things capture the public's attention more than a scandalous criminal trial. In recent years, we've watched cases involving Derek Chauvin, Casey Anthony, Scott Peterson, and Michael Jackson. In the 90s, people stayed glued to their televisions watching Bill Clinton's trial, or O.J. Simpson and Rodney King. There was, of course, the trial of Lyle and Eric Menendez in 1990 that sort of kicked off the idea of turning court proceedings into reality television. In the 70s, newspapers slapped the trials of Ted Bundy and Charles Manson on every front page they could. Even in the 1930s and 40s, people were eager to hear more about the Gloria Vanderbilt custody trial, the Nuremberg trials, or the results of the Lindbergh kidnapping case. Imagine if the Salem witch trials from the 17th century were televised on CNN. We won't be going back quite that far this episode. We will, however, take you back to the late 1800s and dive into what is commonly referred to as the first trial of the century. As was the case with Lyle and Eric Menendez in 1990, this trial revolved around a double murder involving both parents. The facts and results of this case, however, are completely different. I can remember being in elementary school and hearing girls shout out a rhyme while merrily skipping rope during recess. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. I had no clue what any of it meant, and girls were still icky at that age, so I couldn't and wouldn't have inquired further. There's also a lesser-known second verse that goes, Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing, on the gallows she will swing. While catchy, the folk rhyme isn't entirely factual. There weren't nearly that many wax, and she died 35 years later from pneumonia, a word that proves to be much harder to rhyme with. So what made this double murder in Fall River, Massachusetts so darn intriguing? Not only to folks in the 1890s, but even now, nearly 130 years later, Grab your hatchets and follow me as we head back to the year 1892, a year before the Chicago World's Fair and the invention of the diesel engine. Episode 19. Did Lizzie Borden take an axe? On the morning of Thursday, August 4th, 1892, 70-year-old Andrew Borden left his home to conduct some business around town. His wife, Abby D. Borden, and Irish maid Bridget Sullivan were left at the house tending to various chores. His daughter Emma, 41, was away visiting friends, and Lizzie, 32 at the time, had not been physically seen by anybody else in the house since the day before. Andrew Borden returned home just before 11 a.m. on that warm, sunny August day and settled on the couch within the sitting room for a nap. At the time, Miss Sullivan was upstairs on the third floor, resting in bed, fighting off a headache. At 11.15 a.m., she heard Lizzie, who had apparently just returned home herself, call out for help. She'd found her father dead, having been repeatedly struck in the head with a sharp instrument. Lizzie asked her friend and maid, Bridget Sullivan, to run and fetch help. 
It was only when she'd retrieved a few neighbors, one of which being a doctor, that they found the second body. Upstairs, the body of Abby, Andrew's second wife and the girl's stepmother, was found, even worse off than Andrew. A later examination would reveal that her death had come an hour or so before his. A fact that may have played a role in any planning of the murders was that the Fall River Police Association was holding its annual excursion to Rocky Point, a shore resort near Providence, Rhode Island. While numerous officers were able to arrive relatively quickly, these were gentlemen working the latter half of a double-duty shift. The department was severely understaffed. As word traveled quickly throughout the town, an officer was positioned at the door on the north side of the house. His job was to keep everyone out of the home except for the numerous reporters, doctors, and policemen. Within the hour, hundreds of Fall River residents were clamoring for a look inside the Borden home. A double murder carried out in such a grisly manner left people speculating throughout the course of the exceptionally warm summer day as to the who and why. The Bordens were a well-respected family in Fall River, a city 50 miles south of Boston. Lizzie and Emma were born to Sarah Anthony and Andrew Jackson Borden. Sarah passed away in 1863 when Lizzie was barely three years old. The sisters had a religious upbringing and attended church regularly. Andrew married Abby three years after the death of his first wife. Andrew was the descendant of a wealthy and influential family, but made his own way through his younger years and eventually became a successful property developer. He served as the director of several textile mills and owned a substantial amount of property. He was also president of the United Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. At the time of his death, his estate was valued around $300,000, which is the equivalent to just under $10 million today. The idea that these murders were the result of a panicked cash grab quickly took hold around town. It was no secret that the Borden sisters were not their stepmother's biggest fans. The two rarely ate dinner with their parents and often vacationed away from home in search of a reprieve from Abby. In the months before the murders, tension was mounting over Andrew's gifts to members of Abby's family. Abby's sister, for example, had recently received a house from Andrew. This irritated the sisters, who then demanded and later received the property that they'd grown up on before their mother passed. It's interesting to note that he had sold them the property for $1, and a few weeks before the murders, they'd sold it back to him for $5,000. Swirled into the rumors was the idea that someone like Lizzie could never do this to her own father. She'd always been very involved in church activities, which included teaching Sunday school to immigrant children, belonging to the Christian Endeavor Society, as well as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. One name that quickly and quietly came up as a possible suspect was John Morse. Morse was the brother of Lizzie and Emma's deceased mother. He happened to visit the Borden home and spent the night the evening before the murders. On the morning of the 4th, he ate breakfast with Andrew and Abby. Andrew and Morse then went to the sitting room where they discussed business dealings and property for nearly an hour. Just before 9 a.m., Morse left to buy a pair of oxen and to visit another niece in Fall River. By the time he returned for lunch, the murders had taken place. His alibis checked out, but the timing of it all was still of interest to police. On August 6th, it was reported that Lizzie had tried to purchase prussic acid, a poison, at D.R. Smith's drugstore three days before. It was also noted that Bridget Sullivan, the maid, was seen carrying a wrapped parcel out of the house around the 5th. 
Through no lack of police effort, zero suspects had been named and no murder weapon had been found. Although signs were pointing towards Lizzie and an axe someone noticed in the basement. One thing that puzzled police and the public in general was that if Lizzie or someone within the home murdered the couple so brutally, where were the blood-soaked clothes? There had to have been a mess to clean up, and there wouldn't have been a whole lot of time to do it. It was reported that a family friend noticed Lizzie burning a blue corduroy dress on the kitchen stove, an act she performed with numerous police officers in and around the home at the time. Also, what was in the unexamined parcel that Sullivan removed from the home? Was she in on the whole thing? Could Lizzie have murdered Abby, changed, murdered her father, and then changed again? There was also the issue of her father's wool coat being rolled up on the end of the couch which he was murdered upon. It was an exceptionally hot day, even in the morning, and it's said that he always took very special care of that coat. It should have been hung up nicely. Could Lizzie have used it as a makeshift smock? On the 9th of August, Fall River's district attorney held a private inquest within the courthouse. It was closed to the public and lasted for four days. During the questioning of Lizzie Borden, District Attorney Knowlton asked if she knew of anyone her father had been on bad terms with. She answered by saying that there had been one man within the last several weeks who had arrived at the house. When pressed for details, she responded, I did not see anything. I heard the bell ring and father went to the door and let him in. I did not hear anything for some time except just the voices. Then I heard the man say, I would like to have that place. I would like to have that store. Then father said, I am not willing to let your business go in there. And the man said, I thought with your reputation for liking money, you would let your store for anything. Father said, you are mistaken. Then they talked a while, and then their voices were louder, and I heard father order him out and went to the front door with him. Knowlton challenged her relationship with her stepmother, knowing full well that he had witnessed testimony that the relationship was strained. Lizzie answered his questions as if everything between her and Abby was fine. He continued to fire off questions in quick succession, hoping to trip up Lizzie, which he did a number of times. Question from Mr. Knowlton. You remember, Miss Borden, I will call to your attention to it so as to see if I have any misunderstanding, not for the purpose of confusing you. You remember that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home. You have forgotten, perhaps. Answer by Lizzie Borden. I don't know what I've said. I've answered so many questions and I'm so confused I don't know one thing from another. I'm telling you just as nearly as I know how. Question from Mr. Knowlton. Calling your attention to what you said about that a few minutes ago, and now again to the circumstances, you have said you were upstairs when the bell rang and were on the stairs when Miss Sullivan let your father in, which now is your recollection of the true statement of the matter, that you were downstairs when the bell rang and your father came. Answer by Lizzie Borden. I think I was downstairs, in the kitchen. And then you were not upstairs? I think I was not, because I went up almost immediately, as soon as I went down, and then came down again and stayed down. These questions were important, because her stepmother had been murdered upstairs well before her father died. As he continued to question her, more inconsistencies arose. Mr. Borden had been wearing his shoes when he was found dead on the couch. Lizzie stated, however, that he had laid down on the living room lounge, taken off his shoes and put on his slippers and taken off his coat. 
Things got chippy again between the DA and Lizzie as she continued to answer questions with, I don't know, or I can't remember, question. Mr. Knowlton. Miss Borden, I'm trying in good faith to get all the doings that morning of yourself and Miss Sullivan, and I've not succeeded in doing it. Do you desire to give me any information or not? Answer. Lizzie Borden. I don't know it. I don't know what your name is. Lizzie's excuse the whole time for not being in the home at the time of the murders was that she had gone out back to the barn to search for lead to use for fishing sinkers. She had not fished, by her own admission, in nearly five years. The district attorney found it suspicious that she had suddenly, after all that time, decided that it was time to look for sinkers at the exact moment her father was murdered. According to Lizzie, she grabbed a few pears and went and hung out in the attic of the barn for a bit, looking for sinkers. It would be noticed by police later that there were no footprints on the dusty floor, and the stifling heat in the loft seemed likely to discourage anyone from spending more than a few minutes searching for equipment and calmly eating pears. Borden was called back to the stand the next day, asked repeated questions from the day before, denied ever trying to purchase prussic acid, added in a story about a stranger found lurking around the house a few weeks before the murders, and then the inquest ended. Afterwards, Marshal Rufus Hilliard placed Lizzie Borden under arrest. The following day, she entered a plea of not guilty and was moved to a jail in Taunton, Massachusetts, eight miles away. Ten days after the inquest at a preliminary hearing, Judge Josiah Blaisdell found there to be probable cause to try Lizzie for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. In November of that year, the grand jury met. At first, they refused to issue an indictment, but when the jury reconvened and heard new evidence from Alice Russell, the family friend who had stayed with the two Borden sisters in the days following the murders, they changed their minds. Russell told the courtroom that she had witnessed Lizzie burning a blue dress in the kitchen because it was covered with old paint. When combined with Bridget Sullivan's recollection of Lizzie wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders, the grand jury had no choice but to agree to a trial. It should be noted that because of Alice Russell's testimony, neither Borden sister ever spoke to their old family friend again. The trial of Lizzie Borden began the following year on June 5th of 1893. It took place in the New Bedford Courthouse before a panel of three judges, Mason, Blodgett, and Dewey. Defending Lizzie Borden was a man named Andrew Jennings, along with the former governor of Massachusetts, George Robinson. The prosecution team consisted of District Attorney Knowlton, who oversaw the inquest, and Thomas Moody. Women were not allowed to serve as jurors until 1898, so a jury of 12 men were selected on the opening day of the trial out of over 140 possible candidates, some who admitted to already having formed an opinion, some saying they were too old or too deaf or too blind. Thomas Moody opened the state's case and made a mistake early on when he carelessly threw a dress of Lizzie's on the prosecution table during his speech, revealing the skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden. According to news reports, the sight of the skulls was enough to make Lizzie faint for several minutes. This caused the courtroom to buzz with excitement and may have planted an early seed of sympathy in the jurors. Moody described Lizzie as the only person having both the motive and opportunity to commit the double murders. His final act during the state's opening was to pull the head of an axe from a bag, which he claimed was the murder weapon Lizzie had used. One of the first key witnesses for the state was 26-year-old Bridget Sullivan, 
who testified that Lizzie was the only person she saw in the home at the time her parents were murdered. It wasn't all bad news for Lizzie, however, after she testified that she had not ever witnessed signs of an ugly relationship between Lizzie and Abby. This testimony went directly against other prosecution witnesses. A woman named Hannah Gifford, for example, had made a garment for Lizzie a few months before the murders. She retold a conversation in which Lizzie called her stepmother a mean, good-for-nothing thing and said, I don't have much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. Dr. Seabury Bowen, the Borden family physician, recounted Lizzie's story about looking for lead sinkers in the barn and her contention that her father's troubles with his tenants probably had something to do with the murders. On cross-examination, Seabury agreed with the defense's suggestion that the morphine he had prescribed for Lizzie might account for some of the confused and contradictory testimony that she gave at the inquest following the murders. Neighbor Adelaide Churchill remembered Lizzie wearing a light blue dress with a diamond figure on it, but did not recall seeing any blood spots on it. The now former family friend, Alice Russell, gave some of the most compelling testimony when she described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders, stating that Lizzie told her that she felt like something was hanging over her and that she was afraid something was going to happen. Russell also claimed that Lizzie had gone on to say that she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. The defense did a great job of picking apart contradictory testimony of key prosecution witnesses. The defense also exploited holes in the prosecution's case. They wondered out loud to the jury, where was the handle that supposedly broke off from the axe head that the state hauled into court and claimed was part of the murder weapon? The defense also exploited the government's own timeline, which allowed from 8 to 13 minutes between Andrew Borden's murder and Lizzie's call to Bridget Sullivan. Robinson tried to suggest the difficulty of washing blood off one person's clothes and murder weapon, and then hiding the murder weapon, all within that short span of time. The prosecution was further stung by the three-judge panel which ruled that Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, testimony that was full of contradictions and wild claims, could not be submitted into evidence due to the fact that the testimony was made in the absence of her attorney. They were also not able to lay enough of a foundation to allow the druggist or his recounting of Lizzie's attempt to buy acid before the jury. The prosecution then rested its case. The defense presented just a few witnesses, but each helped out immensely. Two different gentlemen testified to seeing a strange man near the Borden house around 11 o'clock on the night before the murders. Dr. Benjamin Hanfey testified that he saw a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk around 10.30 on August 4th. A plumber and a gas fitter testified that in the day or two before the murders, they had been in the Borden's barn loft, raising doubt in jurors' minds regarding the police and their assertion that dust in the loft appeared undisturbed. During Emma Borden's testimony, she said that her father enjoyed a good relationship with Lizzie, while also offering that the relationship with her stepmother was cordial. The defense wanted Emma to testify that the Bordens had a custom of disposing of remnants and pieces of dresses by burning them, but the court ruled the evidence inadmissible. During Governor Robinson's closing speech, he stated that the crime must have been committed by a maniac or a devil, certainly not by someone with the respectable background of his client, who was a woman. He said that the state had failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, something newspapers across the country agreed with. One of the court justices, Dewey, 
told the jurors before releasing them for deliberation that they should take into account Lizzie's exceptional Christian character, which entitled her to every inference in her favor. The jury deliberated an hour and a half before returning with its verdict. The clerk asked the foreman of the jury, what's your verdict? Not guilty, the foreman replied simply. It's reported that Lizzie let out a yell, sank into her chair, rested her hands on a courtroom rail, put her face in her hands, and then let out a second cry of joy. While hugging her sister Emma, she said, Now take me home. I want to go to the old place and go at once tonight. In an editorial in the New York Times, the author described the small town police as the usual inept and stupid and muddle-headed sort that such towns manage to get for themselves. After the trial, Lizzie Borden and her sister Emma returned to Fall River and purchased a home on the hill that they named Maplecroft. Lizzie was not looked at favorably by most Fall River residents, but she didn't care. She found interest in friends in the performing arts, frequently attending plays and often associating with actors and artists. Emma moved out of Maplecroft in 1905, but Lizzie continued to live there until her death at age 67 in 1927. Emma died just weeks later that same year. Lizzie was buried by the graves of her parents in Fall River's Oak Grove Cemetery. So what say you, jury of my peers? Certainly a woman of God couldn't have performed such heinous acts, right? Certainly her sister or maid couldn't have been in on it, right? Was this an example of a good person snapping? Was it a plot by a couple of annoyed sisters? Was it the Irish maid in the library with the candlestick? So many questions and so few answers. It would certainly appear to me that she did it. Maybe with help, maybe not. Folks in the 1800s had a lot of time on their hands. It could have been planned for months. But in that day and age, no woman of her looks and standing would have been considered able to perform such atrocities. It's been almost 130 years. If you know the case at all, you've probably formed your own opinions. There have been countless books and movies and documentaries, but maybe... Hearing some of this made you change your mind or think differently about things. I'd like to visit past trials like this from time to time, so hopefully you enjoyed hearing about it. I'll post some Lizzie Borden-related photos and newspaper articles and trial info on my website, curator135.com. If you haven't already, please join me on Facebook or any of the socials. Just search Curator135. Now that summer's here, I'm hoping to be much more active on them. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star rating. It really helps. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you.